Oh, there we go. Great. Uh, uh, let me go ahead and push forward to, uh, so I can get it to go forward. To There we go. Okay, there we are. All right, this is where we left off last time. Of course, we, we've been doing our vocational lessons this quarter. I guess, I guess they don't want me to. <laughs> there goes the bell again. Y'all are saved, saved by the bell. Um, so you've been doing, been doing our series of vocational lessons, and this one is about Jesus the fisherman. And uh, we left off last time uh, just getting started on producing the catch. Um, and, and all of the, the idea behind this is, you know, uh, using the idea of, of fishing in our lives, in our ministry, in our work, uh, in the church, our work, uh, at work, or out in the world and, and everywhere. Because these concepts, you know, they bridge many different areas of our lives. And in fact, probably all areas of our lives. And that was what made Jesus such an awesome teacher, what made him such an amazing conveyor of information to people is that he was able to take something as simple and understandable as fishing and make it relevant on every level to everybody. So as we go through the lesson today and, and look at these, uh, these ideas from, from him, I hope we can use them as we live our lives and as we minister to people in the church and in the culture around us. We left off last time, the first part of, the, um, of, of, of uh, being fishers of people, talking about uh, the Apostle Luke and, and, and the Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, t- talking about the Apostles in Luke, um, that Jesus was talking to the Apostles in Luke and telling them that they will catch men. And Jesus was using this as a way to reach into the culture and to to bring people out of darkness and into God's truth. And the event of the great catch in Luke 5 is continued and augmented in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, and also in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And we may be looking at these passages in a moment, but right now I just wanted to look at the fact that these are well-known accounts of the disciples Peter, Andrew, James, and John who were fishing together and then left to follow Jesus. But in an event that seems to predate this, uh, this, count, this encounter, we see that an early meeting initiated by John the baptizer, by John the Baptist, and we see this, uh, actually I think it's in, this, this Matthew passage, so we'll, we'll look and see. It says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him saying this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, 
we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, or the anointed. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Cephas, which means Peter, rock. This event led to a catch. This event that we're looking at right here led to a catch that would forever be recognized as a moment in Christian history when Peter was brought to Jesus by his own brother, Andrew. In this one simple introduction, John the Baptist produced an enduring relationship and ministry that would lead to the further production of untold millions of followers of Jesus. We can be that kind of catalyst today. We can make those kinds of introductions today as God's people. We can make that kind of catch, the kind that Andrew did uh, for, for Peter. Who knows what kind of word or selfless act might lead to? Uh, might that initial introduction to Jesus lead to a further exposure to him through you? Production in God's kingdom is a part of the catch, but the catch has to begin with the appropriate attitude of life and, and life of love and sharing. So if we're going about and talking to people and sharing with them, you know, we have to have the right attitude toward them before we can actually share the gospel with them, right? And that was the relationship that Andrew had to Peter, his own brother. He was able to go to his own brother and share Christ with him and bring him into that relationship with Christ. And as a result, a huge moment in Christian history was formed. I mean, it was, it was a pivotal moment when you consider all that happened after that point. <clears throat> well, moving on. It'll move on. There we go. Multiplying the catch. What can two fish do? If you look over at Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, we've heard this story many times. We'll look at it again together. Matthew 14, 30, 13 through 21. We read, Now, when Jesus heard this, he had just heard something. Keep that in mind. He had just heard some news. All right? Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages to get food for themselves. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. <clears throat> and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Jesus here in this story, remember he had just heard something and then he withdrew. He wanted to be by himself. Why did he want to be by himself? 
He wanted to get away and be by himself. Well, in the verses preceding that, he had just heard that John the Baptist had been violently murdered, beheaded. He just found out about that, about his cousin, about this person that we just saw in the previous portion of the lesson who made that introduction to Jesus, to Andrew, and then Andrew to Peter, and so on and so forth. So there was this close relationship he had with John the Baptist, apparently. And he probably wanted to get away so he could mourn and pray, just have some time to himself. If I just found out that someone that close to me, someone who meant that much to me, had passed away, I would want to get away too, by myself. But here comes a crowd, and they're always needy and sick and poor. But Jesus doesn't yell at them or run farther away from them. He has compassion on them. And if you look at the passage, there doesn't seem to be a sermon here. We're not looking at an event where Jesus is is speaking to them. He just turns to them and, and realizes that they have needs. These people have needs. They're, they're sick. They're, they're, they're downtrodden. They, they need his help. And so he has compassion on them and begins to heal them and take care of them. Jesus heals people and he, and he multiplies the fish and the bread and he feeds the people. But the point of the passage and the real multiplication comes in the last verse the one we just read, and it says, And those who ate were about 5,000 besides women and children. 5,000 men besides women and children. I think this, my thoughts here are the point of this passage isn't about the multiplication of bread and fish, although that is amazing. That's, that's an amazing miracle that he, he produced. I think the point here is the multiplication of the people in the kingdom of heaven. And I think we need to say, see the same thing today as we reach out to people. We can multiply money or stuff or food until it's overflowing our halls, but if we don't place it with those who need it, with a message that they meet, need more, then it, it doesn't mean anything. It comes down to the, the sacrifice we make and the compassion we give. Sometimes we just want to be alone, don't we? Sometimes we just want to look at the world and mourn the sin that we see all around us. We want to go, I just don't want to be close. I don't want to be near that. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know about it. Um, I don't want to hear about it. And it's easy for us to just kind of back off from the world and, and go, I, I, don't want to, I don't even want to be in touch with that. And Jesus was in that situation after he had heard about this murder of his cousin, of his beloved cousin, uh, John the Baptist. But he turns around, he turns that around and he says, you know what, all the compassion that I need right now from other people because of the hurt that I feel, I'm going to turn that compassion around and give it to others. And it's because of those hurts that we feel in life that we can do that. You know, we learn from that and we learn compassion by that. And we can turn that around and give it back to our fellow man just as Jesus did in this passage. And that is what will multiply the fish in the kingdom. That's what will multiply the followers of Jesus in the kingdom just as he did here with probably 
I'd say close to 20,000 people if you were to do the multiplication because it says 5,000 men besides women and children. And generally, they had more than a couple of kids and women there too, you know, just basic math. <laughs> Not that I'm very good at it, but there you go. And the apostles learned this message as well. They learned from Jesus this very same thing. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41, beginning of the church here. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. Turn away from your sins and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And of course, after this, the apostles continued in the multiplication of souls in the kingdom of heaven. They did it here, and they continued throughout the rest of their ministry. And you and I are the ones that Peter said are afar off. He says, he talks about your women and children, those are afar off. Yeah, Mike. Sure. That's a great point. If y'all didn't hear Brother Wayne, he was saying about the loaves and the fishes, that the more that the disciples gave, the more they received. Um, and that's the way it is today in God's kingdom, just as it was then. And I hope I got your point right. And, and that's true. That's such a great point. Thank you, Brother Wayne, for bringing that up. Um, the more we give, the more we receive. We can't give enough that God won't give back to us, you know, was it shaking down and overflowing, you know? Um, it's that's a great point. I appreciate that a lot. It, now, okay. That's right. That's another great point that you can't keep giving that where you're gonna you're gonna run out. God's always going to give back to you more than you need and enough to be able to continue to give, which is a great point when you're looking at how we give of ourselves today. And I'm not just referring to money here or whatever it may be or things, but giving of yourself, although, the, although money and things are, are, are added in there. I think those are definitely a part of that as well. It's, not, it's the physical and the spiritual uh, capabilities that God gives us that we're able to give to others. So, 
getting back to what we were talking about here at the, at the end of this passage that we saw in Acts chapter 2, um, you and I are the ones who are far off, the ones who continue to give today, who continue to multiply in the kingdom, just as we were talking about. And yes, go ahead, George. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's right. So, so he could be also referring to the Gentiles and others who weren't of the Jewish faith in this passage. I think he's probably referring to, like, if you look at Scripture, many different places in Scripture, there's this thing called the multivalence of Scripture that refers to many different things at once. One of the things he's probably referring to is the Gentiles. I think he's also referring to us, and he's also probably referring to people who were of other nations, things of that sort. So it's, you know, when you say far off, it's not just specifically talking about time or distance, but it could be talking about people who are far off from the faith. So all those things come together at once. But as far as the one application, I wanted to look at us and how this means something for us as well today, but, but I do believe it means something for everyone today. And everyone at that point in time as well. Because the gospel is for all, right? That's absolutely right. We aren't, we aren't the Jewish nation either. Although we are the New Jerusalem today. And, it, and it's for everyone else today too. Is really what, the, what it comes down to. But, but we have to be the ones to multiply the fishes today. We have to be the ones to take the word and to be fishers of men. And we're the ones who are going to bring the net and the hook and the bait and the love and the peace and the joy and the blessings to the hearts and minds of lost souls. And God will add them when they come in. Jesus teaches us how to fish. He shows us how to work when it's time to work and to fish all the time. Through him we can produce and multiply if we only bring the words of life to those who are living under the dark waves of sin. Now, just to carry this on into, there we go, our work application. When Jesus makes a catch, lives are changed. It's the same way today. If, if, if Jesus catches you and you, want, and you allow yourself to be caught and to live in his kingdom, you're going to change Everything about you is going to change. He uses each and every catch to make an impact, not just numerically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually in the hearts of his people. Each catch we make should do the same. When we make a new friend who isn't a Christian and we talk to him about Jesus, him or her about Jesus, we're casting the net with the understanding that this is how we were caught. When we simply live godly lives in our secular jobs, making a difference in people's lives, we're casting a net, waiting for them to wander toward us and ask us why we are the way we are. When we work hard and make just, right, and wise decisions in the workplace, we're casting a net that shows how important those aspects of good life in Jesus are. 
So much of this is about attitude. So much of this is about example. It's about being a member of God's kingdom and letting that shine in your life, letting your light shine. Jesus also multiplies the effectiveness of everything we do in his kingdom. Just small things multiplied. As he multiplied the number of fish, he also multiplied the gospel in the hearts of people. And we can do the same. When we bring the word, the bread of life, to people and break it before them, it will multiply in their hearts and continue until it overflows and multiplies in the heart of the next person and the next person and the next person and the next person. It is through this process that the church is built and grows and fills the earth. We multiply the effects of our own work in the same way through making wise, good, and right decisions that will multiply the effect of the work we do, causing prosperity and spreading the good example of love, peace, and joy throughout our workplace. So it all comes together. It all stacks on itself. It all combines in a way that exudes this power of God into the world around us. Just a few questions for thought before we move into the next lesson. And the next lesson, by the way, will be Jesus the cook. Uh, In what ways do you cast your nets in your work and personal life? And what effects secular and spiritual does casting your nets have? How are you casting your net? Yeah, Jim. Okay, being a Christian seven days a week. All right, great, great. And and it's, (laughs) you know, it's it's never made a whole lot of sense to me um, to even be here if I'm not being a Christian all the time, right? To come worship God. You know, we say, and and I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong in any way. I'm just trying to kind of launch off of that a little bit. I'm trying to say that if if we're not being God's people all the time out out there, then in here it's not going to matter much, is it? We're not going to be able to really glorify God. We're not going to be able to worship Him. Um, It's just not going to matter. So... You know, being a Christian is is a twenty four seven three six your whole life kind of thing. Um, yeah, Wayne. <laughs> yeah, I imagine they had some people helping. <laughs> yeah. You know what, that actually brings up a really good point too because, you know, Brother Wayne was asking about how in the world do they baptize all those people. Well, you know what, it's something that, I, that I'm afraid that happens a lot of times after we baptize people, what happens? What's that? We forget about them. We dunk them and forget them. Do you think that's what happened here? Do you think that the, that the apostles dunked them and forgot them? Mm-mm. I don't think so either. I think your point of how did they baptize all of them is secondary to the point of how did they feed and care for them and shepherd them after they were baptized. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. There was a, it was a family, wasn't it? It was a family. When you became a Christian, you didn't just enter in, you didn't enter into an organization. You didn't enter into a company. You didn't enter into a corporation. You entered into a family. And that matters a lot. You know, the way that we cast our nets, it's not just a matter of catching the fish. It's a matter of keeping the fish. It's a matter of loving the fish. <laughs> um, surrounding, you know, living in the aquarium together, so to speak, if you want to carry that metaphor farther. But, you know, it's something we have to remember, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Both of y'all bringing that, all of y'all bringing that up together, because I think it matters a lot, and we have to think about that to a great extent when we're out there casting our nets. Because um, once we pull them all out of the nets, boy, we've we got to keep them from flopping out of the boat and back overboard again. Now, how do you break the bread of life to those around you? How are you breaking the bread of life? Okay, studying the Bible. Okay, so I, I have an example of, of living the Christian life. And part of living the Christian life is being in God's word. Okay, all right. And, but getting, translating that into the culture, translating that to other people who aren't in Christ can be, it can be kind of tricky, right? It can be a little, a little difficult because, you know, a lot of times... And I don't mean this in a bad way, but Christians can come off as kind of socially awkward sometimes because we want to spread the gospel. We want to get the word to people. But if you just go up to somebody and, you know, are like, have you met Jesus? They might go, oh, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to meet this guy or not. But I think, you know, you have to be able to get into a relationship with people. You have to carry the gospel to them in a way that... that let them see that your love for them is the reason you're bringing the gospel to them. Right. Right. Well, and, and also I think it comes down to are you doing that for them? You know what I mean? So Sister Nell was saying, you know, a lot of it is your example that you're showing people I, I can live life without being broken by the hard things in life. And I can have the right attitude toward things, things like that. But if I'm not personally conveying that to you in a relationship with you, you know, you can look at me from afar and be like, oh, that guy seems pretty cool. But unless I go, I'm talking to you and forming a relationship with you, then that, oh, that guy's pretty cool thing just kind of fades away. You know, kind of like if we dunk them and forget them, it just kind of fades away. So that we have to be active, right? We have to be proactive. We have to be interactive. We have to be active in the culture around us and with people around us. And I know that word culture kind of comes across, oh, we don't like that word sometimes. Um, but what I mean by that is merely just that there are so many different 
people around us and we have to be able to interact with any and everyone we possibly can. Not that we're trying to live the life that they're living or going to fall into something weird or crazy, but that we want to be able to identify with people and love them and show them God's grace and mercy. Now, have you seen God multiply his bread in your life and how has he done that? How has God multiplied his bread in your life? I see it all the time. But how do you see it? If you're here today, you're blessed. God has multiplied his bread in your life. That's all I can figure. (laughs) There's a reason you're here. Okay. So having peace in God being through through the tribulations of life. And uh yeah, that that's boy that that means it makes makes life beautiful to be able to live that way. And Jim, what were you going to That's a great point. You know, as Christians, we should be the most courageous people in the world, right? We shouldn't really be afraid of anything, not even death. And I think it's examples like what Jim was just talking about, someone who knows that their time is short, who is still um, not bitter, who is still not hateful who's still not afraid, who are living their life to the fullest in the time that they have for Christ. Boy, that is just overwhelming to see, you know, to see someone living their life that way in the midst of, of the valley of the shadow of death, you know, because they know that God is with them. He knows that his rod and his staff comforts them, Right? That's right. Oh, no. No. Mm-hmm. That, that's right. Yeah. That's true. So, like, so, yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Y'all didn't hear Emmy. She was saying that there's nothing wrong with fear, and I agree. And I, I didn't mean that we shouldn't fear or anything like that. I'm sorry, Emmy. I didn't mean to give that impression. I, th- I think, and of course, there's no, you know, if you don't, if there's no such thing as fear, there's no such thing as courage, right? 
because courage means you're overcoming fear. Um, and, and the only way to overcome that fear, I guess that's really the point I was trying to make, is overcoming fear, trying to, to see past it to something better. And I know that's what y'all's comments were about as well, is what it's really about and being able to, to look, you know, to look at God, to look at Jesus, um, to live in the Holy Spirit in, in a way such that we don't, you know, the, the fear is there, but the fear is so, I guess, ultimately inconsequential to the power of God and the courage that he gives us in Christ. So. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, no, it does. It does. It, that God, God's with you the whole time, even though you may not realize it. And that's, that's a great comfort and a great point. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, Joy. They're not satisfying, yeah. And and yeah, what so what, <clears throat> what George was was talking about was the fact that if we don't have anything to multiply, then then <laughs> there's no multiplication that's going to happen. So if we consume all the stuff that we're given, then there's not there's either very little or nothing left for God to use in our lives to benefit others, and we're going to be left empty in the end. So multiplying that bread in our lives, multiplying our our spiritual, physical, whatever it may be, gifts and and, and blessings really comes down to what are you what are you giving to others? What are you setting aside? What are you keeping as a portion to make sure that you're fulfilling the needs, um, spiritual and otherwise, of other people? Um, and that's a, that's a really great point. I appreciate that. Thank you all. It's, it's, it's you who make this class worthwhile, and I appreciate that. All right. Well, if there's any no other comments or questions or anything, let's go ahead and move into the next lesson, Jesus the Cook. Um,
And we'll try to knock some of this out before we get finished here today. I'll go ahead and get started. And once you get it up on the screen, we'll, we'll go from there. It's all good. So when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days, the first thing that Satan tries to get him to do is eat. He says, turn these stones into bread. He's tempting Jesus with the lust of the flesh. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Jesus replies. In this quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, Jesus recognizes the necessity for food simultaneously with the one who creates the food. Jesus remembers the manna in the wilderness. And he makes clear to Satan and to us that all of the bread and every other thing necessary for life comes from God. In this recognition of God's creative power, we see Jesus as the Word who brings into being the food we receive every day in our lives. Yes, Jesus was and is also a cook, a master chef, who provides for us the beautiful, aromatic, delicious life we live. He speaks of salt and seasoning. He cooks breakfast for his disciples, and he makes a meal for us on his day. Jesus brings to us the food of life. How many of y'all like to cook? Yeah, all right. I love to cook. I enjoy it. And not just on the grill either. I like to cook. I like to cook in the house. I like to cook anywhere. I, I, I love food. From when I was <clears throat> a kid, <clears throat> I remember mama saying, okay, boys, I'm going to cook you breakfast, lunch, and supper, and the rest is on you. <laughs> If you want to have anything else that's cooked, you have to learn how to cook it. And so from a pretty early point in my life, I learned how to start cooking some stuff, stuff like spaghetti, you know, pretty simple kind of things. And over the years, I've learned how to cook more complicated and intricate things, and I really enjoy that. I especially around the holidays, love to smoke turkeys and stuff like that on the grill. So I love the precise nature of it and figuring it out and try to making it as good as it, as it, as it can be. But Jesus is the perfect cook, okay? Jesus is the one, as we're going to see in this lesson, I hope, who makes everything just right in our lives, just right. When I was a boy, my dad would wake me and my younger brother up and er, up early every Saturday morning. Now, if you're a kid, usually you hate to be woken up early on Saturday morning. But what he would do is he'd wake us up early on Saturday morning, usually about 6.30, okay, to go eat breakfast with Granny and Pawpaw, and that made everything okay. Granny made the best biscuits I've ever known, and I know you all think that your Granny makes the best biscuits, but mine really did. Granny knew how to cook. She's passed away now, but her mother died when she was a little girl, so she and her sister Margaret had to learn how to cook and keep house and take care of the little ones. Jesus learned the same thing. He knows how to make food not just cook food. He knows how to make food, okay? He knows how to make food. In John chapter 21, after he had risen, we see Jesus making food in a special way for his disciples and for a special reason. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two other disciples had just caught a huge number of fish due to Jesus' miracle. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread 
And Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Those are verses 9 through 14. Now someone who was taking a casual look at this might even say, big deal. He cooked some fish and bread and they ate breakfast. But we have to look deeper to see what Jesus was doing here. One of the most interesting parts of this story to to me is the part where the disciples didn't dare ask Jesus who he was. Doesn't that seem strange to you? I mean, this is the third time he'd appeared to him after his resurrection, right? Just a few verses earlier, John had called out to the other disciples on the boat and identified the man calling from the shore as Jesus. And Peter even threw himself off the boat and swam to the shore to see him. And now they're all they're sitting with him on the shore and wondering if he's Jesus. They didn't dare ask him who he was. It's kind of strange. I believe that Jesus knew this about himself. He was different, but the same, and he knew the best way to reintroduce himself to his friends was over a meal. Food was vital to fellowship in that era. People made important religious, political, and social decisions over the supper table. The Jews made it a point not to eat with people they considered unclean. So when Jesus invited them to eat a meal that he had cooked himself, he wasn't merely giving them nourishment, he was giving them fellowship, acceptance, and spiritual life. Jesus was introducing his disciples to a new sort of life in his kingdom, and it all started with him making food in the nets and cooking food to be served. Jesus didn't just cook food here, he made food. He made the food in the nets. And then he cooked the food. See if it'll move on. Next slide. (laughs) Thanks. Seasoning. Seasoning. Salt's a seasoning that's been around, it's been on earth since it was made. I believe God made salt when he made the earth. It's been used as a preservative and flavoring for just about everything. People put it on meat, vegetables, and even fruit. You ever put salt on your watermelon, salt on your cantaloupe, stuff like that? Yeah, Jim. Oh, yes, you have. (laughs) Okay, Jim puts salt on his watermelon, everybody. I do too. I like salt on watermelon, especially in the summer when you sweat it a lot and you need to replenish your salts, you know, and you get some cold watermelon and put some salt on. Oh, man, I want summer to come again now. It's gotten too cold. I want some watermelon. In the first century and still today in Israel, there were basically three places to get salt. There was the Dead Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and mining. Jesus knew this very well. He knew very well that the Dead Sea was full of minerals and salts that could be rendered for many uses. The same was true for the salt from the Mediterranean. But the salt seasoning he focuses on when he talks to his disciples isn't from either of these two sources. Look at Matthew 5, 13. This is interesting what he calls people here. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus makes a distinction here concerning his followers. He makes a distinction with us. The purer and more common salt sources from the Dead Sea and Mediterranean Sea would have been perhaps more readily available and easier to use, but Jesus calls his people by a rare and more difficult name. The salt from mines would have been harder to get and more concentrated. This salt is the kind that only a few would have access to and use for seasoning. The salt of the earth was was, and is special. You are the salt of the earth. You are special. You are rare. You are good. Jesus asks these thoughts in Mark chapter 9, verses 49 through 50. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. I'll finish up this part. Salt is good, but if, he, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it made, be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the, in the verses prior to these, Jesus discourses concerning sin and gives some symbolic examples of sacrifices that we should make in order to remove sin from our lives. So when he finally gets to verses 49 and 50, he wants it to be clear that if we are to be his people, we have to be seasoned. We have to be brined in him. And part of that brining comes from living a sacrificial life in him and for him salted and tested by fire. If we do this, we will have peace in him and with one another. The saltiness we share as cooks under our master chef is what makes us who we are to Jesus and each other and the world. We are a rare and precious mineral that brings taste and preservation to a bland and dying world. And we'll pick up with supper time next time. Thank you so much.